So last week we started a series, a new series called More Than Conquerors, and we're walking through um, Romans chapter 8 for probably six weeks total. So why is it called More Than Conquerors? Um, glad you asked. At the end of Romans 8, if you're familiar, in verses 35 to 37, it says this. You can kind of look down there if you're not there already. Um, flip a page over from where Tyler did the scripture reading in Romans 6. Find it on page 944 in the Pew Bible, uh, 945. And so Romans 8.35 says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? So the worst that this world can throw at us, can any of those things separate us from the love of God in Christ? And then Paul answers the question in verse 37. No. In fact, why don't we all read verse 37 together? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us, loved us. So, as I mentioned last week, I would encourage you, I would challenge you to really just dive into Romans 8 over these next um, five weeks or so now. Maybe you'd want to memorize Romans 8. Um, Even if it takes you longer than six weeks or even if you only make it halfway or whatever, I don't think you'll ever regret that time spent. Um, Whether you memorize it or not, I would encourage all of us to really take time to meditate on Romans 8. Okay? So what is meditating on Scripture? It is, you could put it this way, putting a text on the front burner of your mind on simmer. Okay? Just let it soak down into your soul slowly, like steeping a tea bag. So um, talked about last week really briefly how meditation is kind of like the middle discipline, okay, between Bible reading or Bible study and prayer. Okay, so you can see how this works when we slow down and say, there is therefore, what's, what's going on before that I need to understand so that I know what that therefore is connecting to. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So you need to study this, slow down, ask questions. Do I really understand what this means? But then it also leads you to prayer because oftentimes you wake up and you have that accusing voice, you know, beating you down in your head, right? So Lord, help me to believe that I am accepted Let's say you get some criticism the day before and you just keep like spinning on it. You know, somebody was critical of you or, you know, you're just feeling condemned because you failed at something. The devil loves to wag his finger and accuse us. Oh, and you call yourself a Christian. So we need to remind ourselves, we need it to be real to us that the only opinion that that really matters, God's, if you're in Christ, you're accepted. And nothing can change that. If God has justified you through Christ, who can condemn? Okay, so we need that to be real. We can know that in here, but it doesn't necessarily sink down into our hearts. So you're meditating and you're praying, Lord, make this real to me. So really encourage you to take um, opportunity to meditate in Romans 8 through this month or so that we're walking through this month and a half. All right. We're also, as I mentioned last week, going to bring community discussions back. So it's a little heads up. 
We're going to end a little early. And so what's God doing among us using Romans 8 to encourage us? Um, opportunity to share testimony. We'll have the roving mic, and you can um, share, even just if it's brief, that's great. Um, something that God has taught you or shown you or whatever. Or, you know, we gave away the Who is Jesus books for you to give out this summer. And I've heard some encouraging stories of opportunities, you know, that people had to share Jesus with others. And so if you had an opportunity like that, it's a great opportunity to stand up and say, hey, this was really cool. This happened. Um, And you can share that as well or any other ways that God's at work among us. All right. So that's coming up at the end. But Let's dive in. We're going to look at verses 5 to 8. We started out by looking at 1 to 4 last week. We're going to focus on verses 5 to 11 um, this morning. But I want to do a little bit of review so that we can get a rolling start into uh, 5 to 11. So that'll be point number one. Before we get there, I want you to think of um, something here. How many kinds of people are there in the world? Well, it kind of depends on what kind of categorization you're looking for, right? So if you're thinking in terms of language groups, there's something around 10,500 language groups in the world. If you're thinking in terms of ethno-linguistic peoples, then probably somewhere between 11 and a half and 13,000 of those. There's other categorizations that recognize even 17,000 groups or 24,000 groups, okay? Depending on how you, you know, set up your criteria. Or you could divide the people of the world into three groups. Extroverts, introverts, ambiverts. Any ambiverts out there? You can look it up later if you don't know what that means. Um, Or there might be nine different kinds of people in the world if the Enneagram is your basis for categorization. Please no. Hope I didn't offend anybody by saying that. Um, That can be helpful as far as it goes. All right. Um, It's just that I've seen some people that seem to be more excited about the Enneagram than they are about the Gospel. So, in that sense, um, you know, let's keep the first things first. So, there might be 16 different kinds of people if Myers-Briggs personality tests, you know, provide all the right holes for the world's pegs, you know, how to categorize people. But according to God, according to the Bible, there are only two ultimate categorizations that matter. Are you in Adam or are you in Christ? Or, the Bible also talks about it this way, you could say, are you according to the flesh or are you according to the Spirit? Okay? So that's helpful and important as we head into Romans 8 because the key point right off the bat is you, if you're in Christ, you have a new position. You're a new person. So point number one, new position. Let's look at verses 1 to 5. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Those who are in Christ Jesus walk according to 
the Spirit. Verse 5, for those who, literally it says, are, the verb live is not there, it's kind of inferred. So for those who are according to the flesh, that's one category, set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, set their minds on the things of the Spirit. So for Christians, you were in Adam, now you are in Christ. Hey, there's this song uh, by the Grey Havens. You can look it up and listen to it. Um, it's called This My Soul. And I wish I could just play it, but copyright issues, you know. Um, so, This My Soul. You can write it down, look it up later, play it. The Grey Havens. It's really a powerful, powerful kind of um, meditation on the implications of being in Adam and in Christ. So I think the words will come up on the screen. Just pay attention as I read through them, and you'll see um, it's a really helpful meditation on this theme. A voice came and spoke to the silence. The words took on beauty and form. The form took its shape as a garden was born. Then man from the dust came reflecting all goodness and beauty and life. But he lowered his gaze as he listened to the face of low desires. This, my soul, you were born, you were born into. What this man, Adam, has done, it all extends to you. Let the words shake on down along your spine and ring out true that you might find new life. So, all the brokenness, all the sin, all the sinfulness, the fact that we're bent and, you know, we all like sheep have gone astray, we wander. All of that is Adam's sin extending to us. Death came into this world as a result and we're in Adam by nature, all of us. But when we come to terms with that, let it ring out true that we might find new life. There's some words of hope. So the voice came, God's voice again, and swords blocked the garden. None could return with their lives. A curse there was placed upon every man to face for all of time. No wisdom of man or rebellion could deliver new life out of death. But the voice with the curse spoke a promise that the word would take on flesh. Remember? So, seed of the woman, seed of the serpent. He will strike your heel, but you will crush his head. Then the perfect son of man took the place the voice had planned since the garden and before. He took the swords and cursed the grave. There's nothing more to separate us from the promise. The words of a living hope. And this, my soul, you were born, you were reborn into, right? What this man, the second Adam, Christ, has done, it all extends to you. So if you're in Christ, all that Jesus did, all that he won, extends to us. Let those words shake on down along your spine and ring out true that you might find new life. Okay, so... You were in Adam. All of us were in Adam. And if you become a Christian, you are now in Christ. 
And all of these blessings extend to us. You've been united to Christ, union with Christ. You are in Christ, which means you are, you are a beloved child of the Father. You've been adopted. Romans 8 will strike that theme a little bit later, which means you're an heir. If you're a child of God, that means you're an heir. Everything that belongs to God belongs to you, ultimately, which is amazing. And that theme is also present in Romans 8. We're forgiven. There's no condemnation. We're righteous. We're reconciled. We're accepted. God is for you. He's not against you. And that is also Romans 8.31. So we're safe. We're secure. All of that extends to us because we're in Christ. So at the cross, God condemned sin in the flesh. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have a new position. We went from guilty in the courtroom to pardoned and righteous in the courtroom. Position. Status. It can't change. Doesn't mean you're perfect immediately. No. But your status is different. Who you are, your identity has been changed. The only approval that matters is already yours. All of that happens by this internal miracle worked by the Spirit. And so it's not just a new status that you're given. It's not just a new position out there, you know, kind of in the heavenlies or something, merely written down somewhere in, you know, the book of life, although that's true. It also means that you are a new person internally. Verse 5, for those who are according to the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, this is spiritual rebirth. It means that your new position comes with a new nature and new power. Okay? So new position. The second point is new power, but let me just give you a little illustration here. Voyage of the Dawn Treader by C.S. Lewis is... How many have read that? Okay. For those of you who haven't, a little spoiler alert here. Um, So here's how that book starts, which just this first paragraph is going to make you want to read it. Okay? So it starts off like this. There was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. I'll let you catch up, those of you who didn't giggle. Okay. His parents called him Eustace Clarence, and masters called him Scrub. I can't tell you how his friends spoke to him, for he had none. And he didn't call his father and mother father and mother, but Harold and Alberta. Okay? I mean, come on. You want to read this, don't you? So anyway, this guy Eustace is this nasty, beastly boy. And the story, in large part, is about his transformation. He is a blight on the group of folks traveling by way of the Dawn Treader. That's the name of the ship. They stop on this island, and in order to avoid doing any work, he wanders off, and he happens to find a dying dragon that is guarding a hoard of treasure. And as the dragon dies, he realizes the treasure is now his. So he ends up falling asleep and waking up Anybody guess it? As a dragon. He first uses this to his advantage, and then he realizes how beastly he is, and yet he can't change himself back into a boy. 
He's powerless. He's hopeless. And then the lion shows up. Aslan. And here's the quote from that incident. Then the lion said, but I don't know if it spoke, you will have to let me undress you. And this is from Eustace's point of view. I was afraid of his claws. I can tell you. But I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat on my back and let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, if you've ever picked the scab off a sore place, it hurts like bilio. Um, Lewis was British. But it is such fun to see it coming away. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, and there I was as smooth and soft as a peeled switch. That's a stick, okay? Like, you know, whittling. Everybody with me? Okay, great. Um, We don't use that language very often. And smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on. And threw me into the water. You can hear echoes of baptism. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. And after that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why I'd turned into a boy again. And then Lewis offers this editorial comment. It would be nice and fairly nearly true to say that from that time forth, Eustace was a different boy. To be strictly accurate, he began to be a different boy. He had relapses. There were still many days when he could be very tiresome. But most of those I shall not notice. The cure had begun. So, If you're in Christ, you have a new position. There is no condemnation. But the cure has begun. There is new power because the Spirit dwells within us, changing us from the inside out. So God has not only changed our status in the courtroom of heaven, no condemnation, He's changed our nature. We are new within If you are according to the Spirit, then you are a new creation in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. So you're not only free from condemnation, the condemnation that you deserve from sin, you are also not held captive to sin. You are not subject to the power of sin. You have new power to walk in newness of life. Like Romans 6 says that Tyler read, verse 4, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Look back at Romans 8, verses 5 to 8. For those who live or are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And the implication, the thing that's implied, is those who are in the Spirit or according to the Spirit can please God by faith, right? Without faith, it's impossible to please God. But by faith, you can please God. 
So the opposite of the inability of the flesh is the ability that we now have by the Spirit. In fact, look at verse 4, and you've got to see the context here, how this flows. God sent His Son, condemned sin in the flesh. Why? In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Fulfilled in who? Those who walk according to the Spirit. How do you fulfill the law? Well, ultimately, we can't be perfect, so we need the righteousness of Christ, right, to be imputed to us. We give him our sins. He gives us his righteousness. So in God's sight, we are righteous. But this says, fulfill the law by walking according to the Spirit. So the law is summed up as what? Remember when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? How did he answer? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is the law and the prophets. How do you love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself? If you're dead in your sins, you're just living for yourself. But when the Spirit changes you from the inside out, you have a new heart that beats for God and for others. You want to love God and you want to love God others. So by the Spirit, we can fulfill the law. Not perfectly, but authentically. We are not confined to our past failures or future failure. We're not stuck. We're not slaves of sin anymore. We're not captive to the devil anymore. We've been set free. Look at back in, in verse 2. This law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So, do you see there's new power? There's a new position, but there's also new power. And we need to be reminded of that because we can really start to easily just get defeated and slump our shoulders and give up. And Paul wants us to know, God wants us to know that we have power because we have His Spirit. Now, one thing to remember as far as putting off the flesh and living by the Spirit, we noted this last week, that the flesh is not just our rebelliousness in like a, you know, party and lust and like all that kind of stuff sort of way, which is true, that's it, you know, anger that's out of control and all of that. But it's also our self-righteousness. It's the younger son and the older son in Luke 15 is the flesh. When you try to say, you know, I'll go my own way, thank you very much, God. And you're rebellious like the younger son, that's the flesh. But if you say, I don't, you know, look at all I've done. And you have your righteousness, your self-worth, and whatever in your performance, that's prideful, that's the flesh as well. I think this illustration might even be um, one that helps drive it home. So if you've ever spent time around little kids, maybe you've seen something like this happen. So imagine little Billy. I don't know if we have any little, little Billies among us. Sorry if we do. Um, not, not pointing at you. This is just hypothetical. Um, so little Billy gets caught red-handed with you know, his hand in the cookie jar, like literally. And mom lovingly and firmly you know, calls him out because he's not allowed to just take cookies out of the cookie jar. And what does Billy initially react? He's, he denies it. And he lashes out with defensiveness. You know, he's four years old and he's lashing out with defensiveness. 
And, you know, he verbally does like the, you know, bob and weave, and he's trying some smoke and mirrors, and then he finally just yells at mommy to go away. <laughs> mommy calmly starts walking toward him, and she asks why there's chocolate on his chin and crumbs on the floor. And all of a sudden, he just seems to soften, and he says, I love you, Mommy. We do the same thing. It's just a little more sophisticated. You see how the flesh can be the, you're not going to tell me what to do, but it can also be this manipulative, like, look at all I've done. Like, give me some points here and do what I want you to do, God, because I'm so moral. It's the flesh in both cases. So, in the flesh, we'll never be anything but guilty. You can be lost by breaking the rules. You can be lost by keeping the rules. We can't satisfy our souls apart from God. We can't find life in rebellion against God, but we also can't self-atone. We can't justify ourselves. We can't make ourselves right with God. We can't be righteous before God on our own merit. So when you become a Christian, when you're in Christ... When the Spirit dwells within you, we begin to unlearn these ways of living. Both our rebellious streak and our religiosity streak need to be left behind. The cure has begun. <laughs> so we don't set our minds on things of the flesh, as if checking off the boxes is going to get you, you know, more goodies from God. And again, that's like a simple way of saying it, but we still, like, I think it just, I've said it before this way, but when our heart rises up, when we, we face some suffering, and we're like, God, but I've done all these things, like, how could you? That shows that we have this thing where it's like, you know, I've, I've paid my taxes, like, I deserve better than this. So we've got to guard against that religiosity streak and certainly the rebellious streak as well. We don't want to set our minds on the things of the flesh. We want, we need to set our minds on the things of the Spirit. And we have power, we have ability by the Holy Spirit to walk in newness of life. We're not helpless. I think that's one of the key takeaways from this passage this morning is if you are in Christ, you are according to the Spirit. You can set your mind on the things of the Spirit. You're not helpless. You're not hopeless. Ray Ortland, I mentioned that book, Supernatural Living for Natural People, highly recommended, kind of meditations through Romans 8. Um, I'll quote it twice here this morning. Um, I like what he wrote here. He says, You know that your faith is real if you find in yourself a mindset preoccupied with everything dear to the Holy Spirit. So I love that, but I'm also convicted by that. <laughs> Am I preoccupied with what is dear, precious, to the Holy Spirit? Is that my mindset? Is that your mindset? Are you preoccupied with what the Spirit loves? Don't you want it to be that way? It's really easy to be preoccupied but with all kinds of other stuff. So what are the things of the Spirit that we're supposed to set our minds on? Well, it's, it's not just, you know, it's, it is a mindset that Paul's after here. It's an orientation of life. The things of the Spirit are obviously the things of God. You know, what's true, 
not lies and deception. Love, not indifference. So not just thoughts in here, but orientation of life, what we think, and then how we act out of what we think. So love, not indifference. Self-sacrifice, not selfishness. Humility, not pride. Certainly the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, 22-24. Um, fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. So this is what the Holy Spirit bears in our lives as we set our minds on the things of the Spirit. So what if we, as the people of God, were more preoccupied with the things of the Spirit than with, say, politics or the news? And again, I'm not saying go stick your head in the sand and don't know what's going on in the world, but isn't it easy to just get preoccupied with this stuff? So when we, like, have you ever felt this way? You probably, I've, I've seen it in my own heart, or maybe you're talking to some other Christian, and it's like, man, it seems like they love sports more than Jesus, or craft beer more than Jesus, or their hobby more than Jesus, or, you know, entertainment, this, this movie or TV series or whatever. Or do you have a little internal alarm that goes off? I know I've gotten preoccupied with other stuff that's so small in comparison to, to the things of the Spirit. So, it's a recalibration. Lord, help me, help us to be preoccupied with the first things. Let's keep the first things first. So we're probably preoccupied or tempted to be preoccupied with those other things because we think that that's where life is at. You know, as long as work is going well, then life is okay. Or you know, as long as I can find some pleasure or solace in, you know, food or my hobby or if I have enough money or whatever, then everything's going to be okay. And again, we've got to eat. We can enjoy those good gifts. Hobbies can be a great thing. Work is a good thing. But if they become a central thing and we're preoccupied with them, that's not the source of life. Another Ray Ortland quote here. The world tells us if you're not in shape, if you're not thin, if you're not beautiful, if you're not sexually active, if you're not young, you're not alive. But is that true? If it were true, then all the fit, thin, beautiful, sexually active young people in the world would be on cloud nine. But they're not. So no, to set the mind on the flesh is actually death. To set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. So where's your center of gravity? Where's my center of gravity? What are we preoccupied with? If it's in the flesh, if our center of gravity is in the flesh, we're going to be wobbly. We're going to stumble and fall. Stability comes when we are preoccupied with the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, which leads to point number three. Who is in you? Let's look at verses 9 to 11. You, however, so do you see how those, for those who live according to the flesh, those who live according to the Spirit, um, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, Paul wants to encourage the Romans, Roman Christians. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. 
Did you hear it over and over again? The Spirit of God dwells in you. You have the Spirit of God. Christ is in you. Interesting how those are almost used interchangeably. They're not interchangeable, but they're inseparable. To have Christ dwelling in you is to have His Spirit dwelling in you. Christ dwells in you by His Spirit. So, and it's beautiful. Union with Christ can be spoken of in both directions. You are in Christ, but Christ is in you. I mean, there's just this natural Trinitarianism that saturates Romans 8. Holy Spirit is spoken of as the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ in verse 9. So, if you are in Christ, then Christ is in you. The Spirit of God is in you. Isn't that encouraging? Like the Spirit of the living God dwells within you. It's empowering. It's hope-giving. It's intended to be. But it could also be discouraging. Maybe, maybe even depressing. Maybe doubt-creating. Because you could look here at the power of the Spirit and think, I'm living this small, defeated life, and if I was indwelt by the Holy Spirit, like maybe I'm not the real thing. I'd probably be living some victorious, impressive life. I mean, so we should examine ourselves. We could be deceived, right? We should be honest, like ask the Spirit, search me and know me. Like, but we also need to be careful. I've come back to this quote over and over again. It's up on the screen. William Arnault, the difference between an unconverted and a converted man is not that the one has sins and the other has none, but that the one takes part with his cherishings against a dreaded God and the other takes part with a reconciled God against his hated sins. Is that encouraging? So, do you feel your need? <laughs> like when you struggle with sin, when you suffer through trials, if you cry out, Abba, Father, like, help! That's the Spirit at work in you. We'll see that in verse 15 in coming weeks. Do you groan in this broken world and not even know what to pray for? Hmm. Verse 23 says, that's evidence this is, the Spirit dwells in you. So if you feel your need and you run to God for help, even if you run to God for help after you've run away from God and then you're like, what am I doing? And you come back, that's evidence of the Spirit within you. That's what newness of life looks like because we cannot do this on our own steam. So what is this passage calling us to do? Oddly enough, there's no commands in Romans 8, which is kind of amazing. Um, because I think maybe God wants us to focus more on what he's done than what we need to do. But that doesn't mean that there's no application here. It doesn't mean we should just sit on our hands. So two brief application points here before we close. It's point number four. Stiff arm the flesh, not the spirit. So this passage is calling us to a spiritual mindset, to live according to the spirit, Walk in newness of life. Set your mind on the things of the Spirit. The Spirit is life and peace. Why would we opt for death? But how many times, I'm guilty of this. I talked to plenty of you who had the same experience. We think that yielding to the Spirit is going to be death. So maybe you, you want to buy something that you've got your heart set on and Holy Spirit, you know, conscience, Holy Spirit's like, nope, nope. And you're just like, I want it, I want it, I want it. <laughs> Stiff arm the Spirit. 
Or maybe you're talking with somebody and the Spirit prompts you to share the gospel with that person and you're like, they're going to think I'm a nutcase. What if they ask me a question I don't know the answer to? I'm going to look like an idiot. You know, stiff arm the Spirit. Or not making immediate war with that lustful thought or being judgmental and these like cold thoughts in your heart toward whoever. Just kind of entertaining them instead. Or maybe the Lord wants you to move toward need rather than running the other way when you see some need because you like want to save your life and your time and your comfort. So how many times do we stiff arm the spirit and submit to the flesh? To set the mind on the spirit. We need to remind us, I need to remind us of this. Is life and peace, it's not death. The only death that it leads you to is death to your selfish self. Death to the stuff that's killing us anyway. So when that battle rises in your mind, in your heart, and it will, Romans 7, I'm always doing what I don't want to do, right? Romans 8 says, give the flesh the Heisman, okay? Any football fans out there, okay? Like, uh, okay, football season. If you don't know what I'm talking about, watch a football game. If somebody's running and you're running, you got the ball in this arm to protect it, and you can stick your hand on that guy's face mask and push him away, like if you're strong enough. And then you keep running. You're not going to tackle me. So stiff arm the flesh. Don't stiff arm the spirit. So there you go. That, hopefully that little um, word picture will stick in your head as far as application here to Romans 8, 5 to 11. We shouldn't fear walking in the light. Don't hold God out at arm's length. He only wants what's good for us. So let the Holy Spirit strengthen your arm to stiff arm the flesh rather than by the flesh trying to stiff arm the spirit. Okay? And then finally, hope. Again, all that you have if you are in Christ is laid out here over and over again. So there's hope. There's hope for change. There's hope for renewal. If you are in Christ, if the Spirit dwells in you, you are a miracle. Do you know that? Like every Christian, I don't care how boring your testimony might be, if you like prayed under the flannel graph at six and never had like a really crazy rebellious streak in you, you're a miracle. It's a miracle you're not self-righteous. Pharisee. So you might not feel like it, especially because we struggle so much, but new life has begun. The cure has begun. And one day you'll be fully made new. You are not helpless. You are not hopeless. So don't despair, brother, sister. Don't throw up your hands. Don't say, you know, if you're older, can't teach a dog new tricks. Come on. I love it. I was talking to Gladys. Gladys is a great example of this. See, I'm just kicking off the community discussion right now. Um, Gladys is a good example of this because she's always trying to, to keep learning. When we were talking on the phone the other day, she was talking about how I think I need to memorize that. And isn't it easy to like, ah, I can't memorize anymore. Okay, come on. You've got the Spirit of God. It'll take longer, but don't say God can't fix this or help me with that. Don't buy the lie that your circumstances are ultimately determinative of your freedom or your joy or your peace. Whatever narrowed horizons are yours because of life in this fallen world, 
Think about Barry Steele, confined to that wheelchair for all of his life. But he was free. So yeah, he couldn't wait for the resurrection body. He couldn't wait. He can't wait. (laughs) So he's free from that body, but he can't wait for Jesus to come back and make all things new in a resurrection body. But he wasn't held captive in his spirit. So there is hope. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. We have new life in Christ. He is making all things new and he will one day make all things new. We have hope. So let's pray and we're going to sing Oh Great God as a response and then we'll have at least a few minutes um, for community discussion following that. So be ready to share um, once we're done with the song. So, Oh great God, you are great and you have done great things for us. Please help us to see them and be reminded of them and believe them and live in the power of them. In Jesus' name and by the power of your spirit, amen.